forever. Dog. Hey folks, it's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and host of this Writer's Panel podcast. Hope you're all doing all right with the world being a monstrous hellscape right now. You may have noticed that we've slowed releases of the podcast for the time being. Honestly, it's just too difficult to muster up the wherewithal to record them. I think, like a lot of you, I'm having trouble focusing. I'm having trouble wanting to do anything that doesn't make a difference in the world. And much as I enjoy the conversations, much as I love talking with writers about writing, it's hard enough right now getting my writing work done. So I'm trying to lay off the things that take up too much attention or planning. But I do have some new episodes for you, which I think are really interesting. Back in March, my friend Martha McGee reached out to say she's teaching a class at DePaul University in Chicago called Topics of Television, The Showrunner. The class takes a look at different showrunners, their interests, styles, and how they've contributed to pushing television storytelling forward. And Martha asked if I knew anyone who might want to answer questions from the students about showrunning and TV storytelling. I thought this was a great opportunity to get some real questions from real new writers, folks who want to do this professionally, who want to be in television, but maybe don't have an idea of where to begin the kinds of questions I really haven't been able to ask since we stopped doing the live episodes, the ones we, you know, we would get those questions from audience members. So I asked Martha if we could record the conversations, and she and the class agreed. I reached out to four of my favorite showrunners, people whose perspectives I really wanted to hear, uh, Gloria Calderon-Kellett, Stephen Cannell's Kevin Beagle and Aline Brosh-McKenna all agreed to give their time to the class and answer the students' questions. They really were great conversations. The questions were so smart and so astute. Um, I think you're really going to enjoy listening to these. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah. So Aline is the writer of many films, um, such as The Devil Wears Prada, 27 Dresses, Morning Glory, We Bought a Zoo, Annie, and the upcoming Cruella. Uh, She was the co-runner of the truly inspired Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and as well as producer, director. There's, looking at IMDb page, a many, many things uh, upcoming that uh, you are working on. So thanks for, for taking, which I'm sure is a very busy schedule to, to come and talk to us. We really I'm happy to be, I'm happy to be here. Well, I'll start off, just ask a question and then I'm just going to throw it out to the, the class. Um, Great. So what is it about film and television writing that drew you to do that as opposed to books or poems or, or other things? Well, I started out by writing a book. When I graduated from college, I wrote a humor book with my roommate. Um, And uh, we got, you know, what was like an okay advance. But by the time we split it and paid our reps and everything, and we were living in New York, it was such a tiny amount of money. It was not enough to live on. And um, I then wanted to, like, keep writing books and magazines, but I couldn't see a way to do it and be um, financially independent. And I was desperate. Uh, You guys are in a similar age group, so you may relate. I was desperate to be financially independent and to be able to take care of myself. Um, And so I, you know, I had no, I knew I always wanted to be a writer. And I also knew that even if I were to, to pursue that, I wasn't really like a prose person. Like I wasn't that wasn't the thing that I was obsessed with. I'm the person who like, when you start a book and there's a long description of the grass and the forest, whatever, I'm like skipping to the story. So I really was in love with um, the screwball comedies of the thirties and forties. That was sort of my main interest. And I used to go to um, revival houses in New York downtown all the time and go see those movies. I I was on a mission to see all the Cary Grant movies, for instance. Um, So I decided to take a screenwriting class um, also because it seemed like more of a job and the freelance writing thing, in addition to being not very, um, well paying, didn't seem like a job job. And I, I really was like, I was looking for more of a job job. So I took a screenwriting class. It was a six week class 
And I got a lot of encouragement in that class from the teacher. And I wrote something that was like, at least on the path to being something. Um, so I decided to try it. And I really was thinking like, I'll try this and, and I'll, I'll see if there's a plan B. And I just, I never, I was lucky enough not to have to, to move to my plan B. And what I found was that writing screenplays sort of allowed me to do what I love doing, which was tell stories, but was less of a, um, a kind of an exercise in literary showmanship. And I think it's important to, to write the kind of things that you most are most excited about. And I really wasn't excited about literary fiction. I wasn't really excited about magazine writing, although that's what I was trying to do. I was excited about these kind of um, comedies with uh, basically sassy women in them. So I decided to start with the thing that I loved and see where it went from there, um, which is not to say it was an easy pass. So that was, I joined the Writers Guild in 1991. Uh, I shot my first thing, which was a pilot in 1996. That was a TV pilot. And then the first movie that I wrote was, was made, was came out in, um, in late 99. So, you know, it was, I started working right away, but it was a long road towards things being made, which is just something to be aware of that even if you're doing relatively well, it can be a long road towards things being made. I really want to know, um, how is it different writing a TV show um, versus writing a screenplay or film? What are the pros and what are the cons to each? Well, it's, I do both obviously. And um, I think it's just how it, the story presents itself to me. Like, I think things that have a more immediate premise are often movies or movies are kind of like the thing that can only happen one time. Um, and obviously TV shows have gotten to be a lot more like movies and people like to say that, you know, TV shows now are like long movies, which is true in a certain extent, but like there are certain things that want more real estate and there's other things that, you know, movies more of a pressure cooker. I'm going to be the person who has my dog on my thing. <laughs> um, and so I think it's sort of like, I let the piece tell me what it wants to be. And for instance, crazy ex-girlfriend, I had always thought of that. I was going to do something with that as a movie, that idea. And then I never really cracked it as a movie, but I sort of had the idea in my head. And then when I met Rachel Bloom and we started talking and I, I hadn't planned to pitch it to her, but while I was talking to her, I was like, that's how I do that. That's how we do that. Um, and what was good about that one was that it took an idea that might've been reductive in a movie format and in a TV format, it really allowed us to like get under that stereotype and really explore it in a more 360 way. Whereas a, a movie might've been more like pressurized and gimmicky. So um, a TV forum just kind of struck me right away. And I, I did both pretty early on. Um, again, I sound like Charles Dickens because it sounds like I'm just, because I really was trying to make a living as a writer and that's not easy. So I started out writing movies. I wrote a couple movies. And then I, this was in the early nineties and I really, I felt like there was opportunities in television and also, you know, another way to support myself. And I was 25 and I met a writer who was uh, a very, very old man. He was 30. He was ancient. Um, and we wrote TV together. And um, so I, I did that for about five years from like age 25 to 30. And then I, then I left TV for a while but I was, I was familiar with the two formats. And so now when things present themselves to me, I can sort of feel like, hey, this feels like a movie or hey, this feels like a show. Hi, uh, my name's Dylan. Uh, my question is about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Uh, yeah. What is the process for making like, enjoyable songs about like taboo subjects like antidepressants or mental health? Like, how did you guys do that? Well, we, it took us a while to develop a system. You know, when you're making a pilot, you have lots of time. So um, Rachel and her collaborators wrote songs for the pilot. Um, and we only had to have two or three. And then when we got into the series at that point, um, it was Rachel and Jack Dolgen who had also done the pilot songs. And then another uh, collaborator, Adam Schlesinger, 
who was an old friend of my husband's and, and he came on and there was a little writer's room that was going, that was the three of them plus me as sort of a mediator, I guess, and then arbiter in some senses, um, running parallel with the, with the script writer's room. But the script writing took precedence over the songwriting and, and that was important to me and Rachel that we don't jam the songs backwards into the plot and the story. So the stories and the characters dictated the songs. Um, and, you know, identifying the song areas was sometimes something the writer's room did, sometimes something I did, but more often it would be something where Rachel, Adam, or Jack would read an outline or we would talk about the episode and something would jump out at them as like, oh, that's a song. Because that's not what my background is. For most of the writer's room, that was not their background. So sometimes the song's ideas came from the room or from me, but often, most of the time, it was Rachel, Adam, or Jack looking at <clears throat> the story and saying, hey, there's a song. So antidepressants is a good idea. I mean, a good example, which was we, uh, the writer of that episode, when we broke that episode, what we wanted to do was, um, so she, she decides to take the pills in the previous episode. So we felt like we couldn't just keep going without addressing the fact that she was on the pills. But we didn't want to do a whole story about it. Um, we wanted to like move from that story into something else. So there had been a brief scene that the writer wrote in their episode that we were working on in the room. I can't remember if it was an outline phase or a script phase. I think we had gotten to the script phase. So there was a little scene where she came into her workplace and she said, um, hey, somebody says, how are you doing your antidepressants? And she says, ah, oh, you know, I've got a few challenges. Because we also didn't want to minimize that the fact that some people have, takes them a while to adjust. And other people in the pretzel shop where she works started turning around and saying, you know what, I'm on them too. I'm on them too. I'm on them too. So I remember Rachel read that and she came into the writer's room and she said, thank you very much. You just provided me with the idea for a song. <laughs> so that was one of those things where we, the writers, we didn't know that we were creating a platform for a song, but because, you know, she has so much expertise there. And that happened really with, with um, a lot of times, like I would, I would bring her in so that she could see where she thought there might be songs. And then Jack was in the writer's room. Uh, he was in both rooms. So he often also identified a few areas for songs. So it's, it was an interesting, it was really fun. It wasn't something I had done before. Um, and they really had to blend together. So figuring out how to blend those two processes together was, was you know, really challenging, but it ended up being really fun and really one of the funnest things that we had to do. How, how did that get done? Um, we don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of what I described to you. We had these two kind of writer's rooms going and you know, Jack, Rachel, and I were in both rooms. Adam was really in the music room, although sometimes he came to the to the writer's room. But it was mostly because, you know, Rachel, Jack, and I were sort of in both. And then truly the, the hardest, they were very hard to produce because, you know, normally when you get a show up and running, it's like, okay, we have Rebecca's house, we have her workplace, we have her hangout, we're cool. And the wardrobe doesn't vary that much. But we had to do two, three, sometimes four music videos per episode. And so production-wise, it was really quite challenging. I don't know how much you guys are working in production, but we had separate um, concept meetings for the songs. And we had one choreographer did all those songs. She had many assistants, but she was the lead choreographer on every single song. And but we had different directors every week. So we would have a meeting where we would, you know, and those were like new costumes, new sets. Uh, and it was quite expensive. So the challenge was, you know, and you'll see when you watch the show, like there are music videos where we have three locations and it's quite expensive. And then we have music, we have music numbers where someone sings a ukulele in their office with a ukulele in their office. It would just was logistically, we couldn't do them. Um, we wrote, we, we shot those episodes in seven days, uh, which is basically we shot a five, a five day, half hour, and then two days of shooting for the videos. That's basically roughly how it, and the 
music video kind of area was always hungry for more hours. Uh, but, you know, we would often shoot a whole music video in, before lunch. And those were not ideal circumstances. And it was always like, you know, uh, you know, Rachel in particular was always agitating for sort of more time and more hours and more stuff. But on the other hand, she also knew, and we also knew that we had to balance that against making sure that we had enough time to do the scripted stuff. So um, the logistics of it were challenging. We had an incredible line producer, Sarah Kaplan, who had done um, Lost and Alias and Brothers and Sisters and is very experienced. And so she would sometimes come in and say, you've gone mad. You've gone quite mad. Um, and we would have to figure out what to cut to, to keep our, because it was important for us to stay on budget so that we could stay on the air because we were so lowly rated. So we couldn't be a very lowly rated show and then be like wildly spending money and be, you know, fiscally irresponsible. So Sarah really, by hook or by crook, kept us on track to, to you know, so we would, you know, spend a lot of money on one. And we have jokes about it. We have the song, um, we, it, there's a lyric in the song, uh, Love Kernels, where she says we spent all our money on this song. And it's not untrue that like if we did something like Love Kernels where we shot outside in a desert and did, you know, tons and tons of costumes, you would then not be surprised to see a musical number, which was like people dancing around the bar, you know, and we had to do a certain number of like there, you know, as we got into it, it was like, we're doing another dance number now in the office or in the bar. What can we do to, you know, to keep it fiscally responsible? Hi, I'm Brendan. Um, my question for you is, how did you and Rachel come together to start making Crazy Ex-Girlfriend? I saw her YouTube videos. Um, I watched uh, as, uh, all of them, basically. And then I just wanted to meet her just to say, hey, how can I support you? How can I be helpful? Maybe I can produce something. Um, and I, when I met her, I just really, we just really bonded, connected right away she's so so smart um and she she basically was like, like we we had very similar interests in terms of what we were interested in writing about and particularly what things we were we were interested in taking on and sort of deconstructing so i pitched her the idea for crazy x <clears throat> in the meeting not having intended to do that and i just pitched it to her and we started, so we started working on that show 20 minutes after we met and then didn't stop for, uh, let's see, six years or something like that. So it was, it was kind of an instantly we were working on that. Um, and, you know, that's a rare thing. Uh, and it's been kind of interesting because we wrapped the show in early 2019 and then, and then there were a, a lot of months of work because we did a live special and a documentary and all this stuff. So we were really kind of working on it till April of last year. So for the last year is the first year Rachel and I haven't been working together in the time we've known each other. So that's been kind of fun and interesting. It's the first time in all those years that we're not, we, we were having a baseline conversation about the show always, like even in our downtime, we would be texting each other ideas about the show. So now we don't have that to work on it's kind of, it's been actually kind of sweet and fun to just be buddies. Was the show always, when you pitched it to her, I, I guess that's when the, the musical element kind of came in the mix. Did, or, or, or well, that's what she, that's what she, that's what she was doing. Yeah. And so, and so she has a video that you can watch called pictures of your dick. And it's, it's, yeah, it's very much a crazy ex-girlfriend video. And so as soon as we started talking about it, obviously if I was going to do it with her, it was to incorporate her style and her style is to make those funny videos. And so um, she has a really good sense of how to incorporate music into storytelling. And she had a lot of opinions about it. And so did Jack and so did Adam. And so did a lot of our directors ultimately. But Rachel was the first one who really, guided me and taught me a lot about that because all I knew was the stuff I didn't like. 
I, I like some musicals and I love, I love some musicals, but I'm not like a soup to nuts musical theater fan, 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 uh, the way Rachel is and the way some of the people on our staff were and are. So I, there are things about musicals, especially film musicals that really make me cringe. And Rachel and uh, Jack and Adam were very good at identifying why I was having that reaction. Um, and so we did a, you know, all those numbers are basically parodies and they take place in someone's imagination. So you're not having that worry generally about like, wait, it's weird that they're singing. Who are they singing to? How is this happening? You know, we, we developed a way of doing it that was comfortable for me. So in a certain respects, it was good to have it, to have um, someone who was not as like adept at or infatuated with musicals as part of the process. And Rachel has a good bit of distance on musicals and wanted to comment on them. So um so that was that was part of the fun was sort of the peanut butter and jelly of our different differing sensibilities on that. Hi. Um, I was wondering like what did you learn from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend that you're going to use for your future projects? I mean, it's I can't really it's hard to pin down to one thing. I learned so many things on so many different fronts. Um you know, screenwriters are the boss of no one and nothing, as I've often said. And a showrunner is, is in charge of and responsible for almost everything. So uh, the things that I didn't know about, you know, I, I really had to get to, up to speed on. And, and what I really loved was there were so many people around me with so much expertise. Um, our two senior writers were this uh, an incredible woman named Erin Ehrlich, who um, had sort of co-showrun a show called Awkward and had been in animation for years, and Michael Hitchcock, who you might know from the um, Christopher Guest movies, but he's also, he was a writer, worked on Glee and, and some other shows. So they were, in, they were invaluable. Sarah, our line producer, was invaluable. All of our department heads. And then the writer's room, all of the people in the writer's room had more television writing experience than I did and way more room experience than I did. And I, I really leaned on the people around me to, um, you know, solicit their feedback about process. Uh, same with assistants. You know, I would go to the assistants and say like, what's the best way to do this? What, what, what's easiest for you and works best for you. And generally people know what they think are the best practices in their area. And they have expertise that you can't have coming in from the outside. So it was sort of a blend between like, soliciting people's in, you know, feedback and input about how they were doing it. And then also trying to figure out the system that worked best for our show and for Rachel and I, and sort of finding that balance. But, you know, there were things like I was important for me that the actors know, knew what we were doing. So the first couple of months of the writer's room, uh, we would try and get as far as we could with the actors and we probably knew up to like episode six, seven, or eight where their characters were going. And then I would have a lunch, sometimes in the writer's room, sometimes not, with each of the actors, especially the ones who wanted to know, and tell them where their character was going. Because I felt like if I were them, I would want that. Um, and that was something that was very helpful, particularly helpful for some of them to know sort of where their characters were going. Um, but the flip side of that was sometimes things would change. And so they had to be uh, comfortable with the fact that like, this is where we think we're going, but, but things might change. And they were generally pretty comfortable with that, but it, it allowed them to create their characters kind of having a sense of what the next couple steps were. So that, that was an example of like, trying to create a feedback loop so that the people um, working on the show can, can give you the benefit of their wisdom and expertise, which they have if you ask, they, they have it at their fingertips. Hi, thank you for doing this. Um, I was just wondering, how do you handle staff or crew whose visions for your show conflict with your own? Um, well, it's, it's, it's a bit what I said, which is like you, you are, you're trying to draw the best out of people and get the best ideas you can. Um, but it's really important to be decisive and to, always be looking, you know, you're moving to take the hill. 
you're always moving, you have a goal. Um, and so that balance between like soliciting feedback and taking the hill uh, is, you know, it's a lot of what I think it leading any enterprise is about. Um, and I had the additional challenge of making sure that Rachel was on board with everything when Rachel, you know, was shooting 16 hour day, you know, her, she wasn't shooting 16 hours, but when her day started with, you know, a 4am hair and makeup. Um, so I also had to loop in and make sure that Rachel was up to speed on everything that we were doing. So that was a particular challenge, but, um, you know, it, it's a, uh, the system is created so that the feedback comes from one or two people and the rest of the teams kind of understand that like you're supporting that vision and it's important to have a singular vision. And that I think is more comfortable for people than feeling like there's sort of chaos, confusion or indecision. So Jen, I didn't really have too much of an issue with people, um, you know, and I encourage people if they had substantial disagreements, especially creatively, to tell me so that we could kind of air them out and figure out if it was something we needed to be addressed. But, you know, the good idea can come from anyone and can come from anyone on set. And the insight about like, oh, maybe we could do it this way or, you know, that's not a good idea or this is a good idea can come from, from anyone. And so that's it's nice to try and keep things as open as you can so that you can get that feedback but you always have to like keep going. So that's one of the challenges for sort of pulling in two directions. Hello, how's it going? <laughs> um, my name is Jamie. I have a question about studio or network notes. How do you deal with notes uh, from higher ups that you do not agree with? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, um, I do really like feedback, as I mentioned, and I think one of the reasons for that is I'm a pretty decisive person and I know what I think, so I don't often get knocked off course. So if somebody says, um, you know, like I'm a person, if I go to the, if I go shopping, I don't, I'm not generally dawdling between sweaters. Like I, I generally know what I want. So feedback from other people of any kind, including notes, I think is super interesting. And so I always want to really like listen to it and see what things in there I think are helpful. Um, Cause as I said, the great note can come from anybody. Um, we had wonderful executives on our show, um, but kind of really all around, but also again, one of the nice things about TV as opposed to film is like, they really want you to, create your vision. We were always encouraged to pursue our vision. And so when there were things that we really didn't like, or we didn't respond to notes wise, there was always a conversation to be had. So we were very lucky in that way, but just in general in my life, um, I don't really mind a bad note. And if you guys are going to be writers, you're going to get a lot of notes. Um, but it's essentially if someone is saying something to you that sounds insane, there might be something in they might be responding to, I'm sure you've heard this analogy, but like somebody comes to you and says, I don't know, my knee hurts. And you have to figure out if it's a mechanical problem or an inflammation or, you know, that's part of your job as a writer is to like hear the complaint and then figure out where that's emanating from. And so uh, that's something that you kind of have to understand is part of the process. And if you don't, want tons of feedback, then Hollywood is not a good place for you as a writer. You'd be better served doing something where like you're posting to a blog or you're writing in a more immediate format or you're doing things for YouTube or you're doing things for TikTok where you're not being edited. And there are so many ways to get your stuff out there in an unmitigated way. But if you're going to work with a studio and you're going to work with network and that's the type of writing you want to do, you, you have to uh, be open to other people's feedback because you're not paying the bills. One of the reasons you get to do whatever you want on TikTok is because you're 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 funding, you're self-funding. Hi, uh, thanks. Hi. Um, I uh, wanted to go back to your writing process. I was yeah. wondering how you develop characters. Your stories seem to be uh, really high concepts, but still with very compelling, relatable characters and deep themes. 
So do you like, like, do you decide like a perpetual bridesmaid is a really interesting situation or premise and then go about from there building what's the most interesting character to put in that situation or like, how, how do you, how do you do that? I guess. That's like such an excellent question. Thank you. I don't know that I've been asked that before and that's very perceptive. Um, it's kind of both. I do have like, tend to have those kind of bigger ideas that are sometimes attached to a title. Um, that's sort of how my brain works. But I, I feel like my first responsibility is to nail the characters. And it's funny, for years I, I started collecting portraits and I now have like an insane number of portraits in my house. And I realized at some point um, that's because I, that's what I do. Like I, that's how I think of myself as like somebody who creates portraits of people and you know how they always say like character is story, story is character. That's a thing you say a lot. And I, and people say a lot. And I think when you're starting out as a writer, that sounds confusing in a way. Cause you're like, why is the fact that she likes squash? How is that affecting my story? You know what I mean? Yes. But the more complicated and interesting, we actually got an, I got a note from an executive on a, Thing I'm working on right now where he said the character should be anti-binary and I thought that was really interesting like if you make a character too archetypal right like a bad boy or an uptight girl or whatever it's not just that it restrains you in terms of your scene work but it restrains you in terms of where you can go story-wise so the more edges and wrinkles that you can put into a character while holding it together into a single idea, the more places you can go with them and the more interesting it'll be to see them. So like Rebecca Bunch's character is quite complicated because she's very sweet and she's very sentimental. She can also be a real asshole and she's very confident in certain ways. She's completely underconfident in other ways. And, you know, so, and like the character of um, Anne Hathaway's character in Devil Prada, like, in a way, she's sort of like what we think of as sort of an innocent in a, in a rough world. But on the other hand, she has like a, a very strong sense of her own importance. And, you know, she thinks her work on the janitor's union is incredible. And she thinks she's really smart and she's been rewarded her whole life. So the more you can give your characters these kind of like dimensional, char dimensional characteristics, when someone says character is story, Part of that is because then when you are walking that character through these different situations, they will do and say interesting things. And if they're too simple, too thin, and too cardboardy, it will, it will restrict your, you story-wise. So like when, when there is a concept, it's exactly what you said, which is I try and figure out who can inhabit this to make it the most interesting 27 Dresses is based on my best friend who, at the time that I pitched that movie, she had been in 12 weddings. She, she has since been in like four or five more and also has conducted a few, which I think counts as like five per. Because uh, if you're conducting someone's wedding, you're like even better friends with them. So I think it's all psychotic. And that was something where I was, and, and so the character in the, in the movie is not her. Like she doesn't have a sister and she's, you know, it's, it's not her exactly, but that situation was inspired by her. And then the, the question was, who is the most interesting person to inhabit that dilemma? And my thesis was, because you can do an always, the, always a bridesmaid movie in any number of ways, right? You could have a girl who's very, you know, who dates a lot and, and, and sleeps with a lot of guys, but it doesn't work out. Or you could have someone who's, I don't know, very religious or someone who's a guy's girl or whatever. But what I was, what I, my, what I thought was interesting to inhabit that was my theory, which was that people who end up being bridesmaids a lot, like my friend Kate, are the people who drive everyone to the airport, dog sit for everybody. I'll, I'll tell you a great recent story about Kate. Like Kate takes being considerate to a point that I completely don't understand. Um, so we have, I have some lemons in my yard and I texted a few friends and I said, I have some lemons if you guys want lemons and I took three bags and I put six or seven lemons out on my stoop for them and said you know if you want to come by and pick up lemons 
So my couple other friends take up, pick up their bags, you know, and go. And then I see that Kate's bag still has a bunch of lemons in it. And I text her and I'm like, what happened? And she said, oh, I, I only took a few. I didn't want to be greedy. And I was like, Kate, I put bags in it, lemons in it, but that's your bag. Take all the lemons. And that is our friendship in a nutshell. Like in that movie, I'm the Judy Greer character. And I'm the one who's saying, take the whole fucking bag of lemons and put them in your car. Like if I'd been standing there, I would have been, you know, through my mask, 10 feet away saying, take them, take them. But she's thinking, she, was, she said, oh, I didn't want to be greedy. I didn't want to take too many lemons. And I, was, I am so fascinated with that type of person. And I thought that type of person would be great in that always bridesmaid story. Can I use that lemon story for my thesis? <laughs> you can. Uh, I don't think I will be using that anytime soon. But, you know, she also, like one time, somebody emailed Kate and said, hey, we're going out of town. Can you take care of Bruno the dog, blah, blah, blah. And she forwarded to me and she said, I don't know who this is. But they felt they knew her well enough to ask her to dog sit for them. Great. So I love that character. And I'm trying, I have been trying for many years to do that. Um, 27 dresses as a TV show, partly because I think that's very relatable. And I think a lot of people have that kind of inveterate people pleasing thing where they, for whatever, Kate was always driving people to the, before Uber happened, Kate was constantly driving people to and picking them up from the airport. Hi, I'm Veronica. Um, and I've seen like on your IMDb that you've written and created mostly comedies. And I was just wondering why you gravitate more towards comedies rather than drama. Um, I mean, it's just sort of, again, it's, it's, it's sort of how it comes out. Like I'm working on something now that's pretty dramatic, but it, it seems to come out that way anyway. Um, you know, tone is super important. It's super, super important. And I think it's not discussed enough and the reason it's not discussed enough is because it's really hard to kind of nail down what it is and where it is. But when you are like um, watching Netflix or Hulu or whatever, and you start a show, uh, like my family makes fun of me because there's a lot of shows we've gotten seven minutes into and I'm like, oh, I'm done. And that is two things for me. It's usually like, does this have a really distinct tone? And does this person feel really in command of their show? And nothing delights me more than, than starting to watch something and having like a really strong specific tone to it. And that you can love that or not love that. Um, and, but that's a thing that you respond to, whether you love that or you don't love that particular thing. Um, and in the stuff that I'm writing myself and the stuff that I'm producing, I, th I, I, the way I try to describe it is like, it has to be a little bit funny, has to have a little bit of humor. And that does like, I think marriage story is a little bit funny, you know, like doesn't mean it needs to be hilarious, but things where people are like super stoic, never laugh. Um, you know, I have a friend who always says he wants to go up to them and like point them at, poke them in the stomach and go, you fart, you fart. Um, so like when I, I'm not great with stuff that's like completely serious where like there's no levity because it just doesn't feel true to humans to me. I think humans are able to laugh in the, in the, in the face of, as we have seen. I mean, Twitter is a good example. People are able to laugh in, in the face of like tremendous adversity so that's an essential component for me. And I've worked on things with every variety of, of tone. And I've worked with things that are, you know, quite serious. And We Bought a Zoo deals with death and Crazy X deals with um, obviously mental health issues. But I, I do always try and find the levity in that. I think that's just my sensibility. You have a lot of underlying theme in a, in a lot of your writing, especially for, for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, that it's not about romantic love is the answer. Right. It's finding your voice and finding your passion. Um, and I think that's one of the things that was so refreshing about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend that the audience thought we were coming in and yeah. said something about romantic love, but then it was like, no. Um, yeah. 
the the ending especially was um, the finale showing her in the future. I don't want to spoil too yeah. many people haven't seen it, but just it's not going to solve the problems. You're it, this is like you can be happy with your partner, but that might not. That's not going to solve you. Um, and and for me, that was a very big representation. Um, just seeing that on on television was huge, but also for people say like my, my husband wanted me to, to mention him. My, my husband was so moved that there was such true representation of what it felt, um, what mental illness felt like and seeing it as like a lifeline for, for him to, to represent like a diagnosis being sung, being so true to the fact that how so many people felt but seeing yeah. it in, in song, like, did you set up to show things that had not been seen on television or was that just something that was kind of a coincidence? Like you were interested in, in telling this and this, this is just what. Well, happened. we had, I, I think that when you call something crazy ex-girlfriend, you, we promised the audience that we were going to deal with her mental health. Um, and we felt that was very important. That was, that was something that we had set up and we really needed to deal with head on. What does that mean? Um, people with BPD are often the people to whom you say to your friends, wow, that person is crazy. That's, it manifests in that sort of very erratic, extreme behavior. So we always felt like we had promised that. Um, the thing about work that's kind of interesting, I grew up with a father who adored his work. He's an engineer and he loved it and he thought about it all the time and he talked about it all the time. And he always said, you have to find something that will get you out of bed in the morning, is what he used to say. And he really loved work, and he always stressed the value of work. And he, he did not stress it more for my brother than for me, uh, which is a pretty incredible thing to do in the 70s. Um, and I also felt, you know, I, I grew up in a time where there were a lot fewer depictions of kind of interesting love stories. Like, I, the 70s and 80s, I really was confused about how I was going to make this work if I wasn't Christy Brinkley. Like I felt very excluded from a lot of the romantic comedies or love stories I felt weren't about women like me. So I felt like I'm going to have to figure some other way out, way through this. So that's part of it. Part of it's my dad. Part of it's that I don't really respond to like traditional Cinderella narratives because they don't seem to include me. Um, and, and then the other kind of facet of it is I think that from observing life, I don't think that what we see in life is that people found their spouse and then their answer, their questions are answered forever. And we don't believe that. So like if your friend has a breakup or your someone gets divorced, we don't go, oh, you fucked it all up. You're all met. It's all, it's all over. It's done. It's all about, never mind. We don't say that. You know, we, we understand that like love is a thing that, you know, can suit you in a certain time and not a certain time. And there are things that can happen. And, um, but finding a meaningful relationship, not just to work really, but to the world that's something that Jane Austen talked about, Edith Wharton talked about, you know. Um, and I think, you know, for narratives about men, it's sort of taken for granted that you can't just have them find a love interest. You have to have them find their place in the world. But there is something kind of radical and new about saying that about women. And I was completely boy crazy in high school and college, but I was also very doggedly interested in my career and my work, you know, and, and finding like my home in that respect. And I just think we all know that we're doing both. Um, and it doesn't have to be, it, it can be raising children and it can be volunteering and it can be being a CEO and it can, you know, it can look a lot of different ways. Um, and, so a lot of the things I've written are technically romantic comedies like Crazy X, like Morning Glory, like Devil Wears Prada, but they're not, the solution is not a romantic issue. I think it's interesting that We Bought a Zoo, which is also about someone finding their place in the world, figuring out who they are, 
he does have a relationship. It's not the central preoccupation, but no one's ever referred to that as a romantic comedy. And I think that's because um, it's a man. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just have not, uh, I don't, don't we all know that like after the first kiss, there's a lot of stuff coming that's more complicated than that. So I, I never really, even as a child, I never really gravitated to those like Cinderella stories. And I awfully was awfully confused always as a child by Sleeping Beauty. What's happening there? She's just asleep and then a guy kisses her and what's, what's happening? Very, very confused about that one. Yep. Yeah. That's on cue in my house, unfortunately, the next day. So, uh, I get, I get why that tickles people. And obviously in Crazy X, she's obsessed with those stories. But she's also trying to figure out why they're not that satisfying. And they were not particularly resonant to me. Like I, when I saw broadcast news, my brain exploded because it was like, you know, that's, that's about someone who's better at her job than anybody else around her. And the men have to measure up to her. And ultimately they don't. <laughs> right. So. Well, in, in, in Crazy X, like it's, it's not just, um, it's not just Rebecca's, finding her voice it's it's everybody single character gets to a different place throughout the entire span of the series yeah Yeah. that was our idea was that she was a catalyst for all these people to make their own their dreams come true um and then there's one character in the show who's like distinctly uncharmed by rebecca and that's why josh and like his life his life isn't really changed by her very much because he was never that into her to begin with so that always made us laugh Hi, I just wanted to know, like, since you were showrunner of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, what role did you have in getting crew workers back into the industry after the finale? Getting them back into, after the show ended? You mean like what they did after? Yeah. Oh, well, I'm not, everybody on our show was quite sought after and very busy and, uh, I mean, and the, the business has kind of been booming So, and a lot of the people on our show had done such a good job. So most, a lot of people were working right away. Um, And, you know, obviously right now we're in a really tough, tough, tough situation for crews because, you know, writers can write. um, I, I can continue to write, but crews have to be on sets and they have to all be together. And it's so, so unfortunate that, we're in a situation where like the thing that is, is the most dangerous in a way is the thing that, that crews do, which is like to be together in a group. And it was such an incredible group of people on the show. Um, we had mostly the same people the whole time. We had basically the, the same writer's room the whole time, but we had many, many of the crew people, the, the majority of the crew people were with us the whole time. Um, and so lots of them went right on to other stuff and we're doing great stuff. And, and um, you know, they, there's, there's a lot of the crew members know each other and have known each other for a long time. And, um, but then everything has come to a halt, you know, obviously recently and it's, it's really heartbreaking. So um, a couple of friends are raising money for, for crew members because um, you know, that's, that's, it's really, really a challenging, challenging time for people below the line. Cause also we don't know when we're going back. So there's not as much of a sense of like, you know, if, if, if it's just really a tough situation, but we had, we had wonderful people who came to us with long resumes and um, all of our writers on the show are, are <clears throat> working or if they're not working, it's, it's by choice. And um, so um yeah, we, we have people came, went from our show to working in many, many shows. And, um, but I, I'm hoping that we're going to find a, a path back to employment for all these folks. Well, I, I mean, I have enjoyed seeing people's names that, that I had seen in, in the credits of, of Crazy X on other shows. And I, yeah, my daughter and I were watching um, a Diary of Future President. And is, that's a lot of Pena from your that's my that's my she she was my assistant and then she was the writer's assistant and then she was our most junior writer she is a fabulous fabulous woman I love her she's a delight um 
And, you know, she was, she was by my side for a whole season. And then in the writer's room, the writer's assistant is, is quite close to me as well. So she wrote that pilot and it got, um, she got it to the right people and it got picked up and she has her own show. And I'm like, I just texted her yesterday. There's a, a little special if you want to see her. Um, she's not that much older than you guys. Um, I think she graduated college in 13, 14. Um, and there's a special, the, the, there's a Disney on Disney plus there's like a little behind the scenes featurette and she's in it and you can see her and she's just a wonderful, wonderful person. And I, 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 I watched it yesterday and I texted her after and I said, just my heart is exploding with pride for you. She's a, she's an incredible person, incredibly hardworking. So like as a writer, like in this situation, do you feel like, like, um, since like everything that's happened, do you feel like a need, maybe not to necessarily address like the pandemic in your writing, but to right. like do something like dramatically different considering that there is like a big shift that's like happening, you know what I mean? Like, or do you, do you feel like other well, writers feel that too, sort of, or? Yeah, I think we're going to be dealing with the sort of consequences logistically, emotionally, politically, spiritually for a long time, don't you? I mean, I think we don't know yet what the ramifications of it, but um, yeah, I think it's anything that affects the way the world is. And, you know, 9-11 changed a lot for people, stories, the world, you know? So um, <clears throat> it's, we don't know what the future holds. And I, um, looking at all these young faces, I, I hope that we figure out a, a healthy, safe way forward. And I wish you guys the best of luck. And, um, and thank you for having me. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.